The river is alive. The river is real loud. How spring bubbles in the roots. Oh, so liquid and foreign. So graceful and unexplainable. The strange things and the queer things. Every flower, bud and leaf. I'm looking up at the trees. They're stealthily watchful and calm. But I tell it because now I can share my story in free space here, in open space. They may not look the same, they may not act the same. There's no judgment out here. Lying with my back on the sand, listening to the waves. I am here, and I am alive. This is Queer Out Here, an audio zine that explores the outdoors from queer perspectives. I'm Jonathan. And I'm Alice. Welcome to issue four. This issue takes us on a journey in and around Waterworld, explore ideas of communities and spaces for queer people, and invite us to reflect on different perspectives of the outdoors. From monologues, poetry, music, sound art and interviews, we've received a fantastic selection of pieces, and we'd like to thank everyone who has taken the time to send one in. From full pieces to sweepers, we love them all, and we hope you do too. We have some fantastic cover art this issue from Ella. Her design was inspired by religious iconography and stained glass windows, and it is absolutely gorgeous. If the artwork doesn't show up on your feed, you can head over to our website to have a look. That's queerouthere.com listen. And you can find more of Ella's work on Instagram too, where she is at E-L-L-X-A-M-C-D underscore art. Before we start, a few housekeeping notes. The pieces in Queer Art Here talk about many things related to being queer and the outdoors. This issue contains explicit descriptions of sex, swearing, risky activities and environments, mention of drug use and queerphobia, including misgendering. If you have specific anxieties or triggers, you may wish to ask a trusted friend to listen and give you feedback. You could also check the transcript for particular words. Find it linked in the show notes on our website, queerouthere.com. But for now, get ready to take your ears adventuring. Let's Let's get get queer queer out here. Hello, I'm Abby. I'm paddling about in a river by a pub in Kent. And you're listening to Queer Out Here. From kayaking down a river, diving under the sea and listening to the rain, the three tracks featured in this first section are all about water. We begin with a poem and field recording from Cecily Rose. When we first set up Queer Out Here, we had discussed how nature can be a place that is not judgmental and where you can fully be yourself. And this is reflected in Cecily's piece. She writes, I've fallen in love with this river. I've fallen in love with myself on this river. So this is my love letter to the river and all that she's shown me. The river is alive. Her water flows down this winding path like veins pumping life through everyone she touches. Fish sleep high for their first meal of the day. Birds sing their morning heart song. A family of deer swim across to reach a vineyard on the opposite bank. The river brings life to all, including me. Me, a fat, queer woman who's taught to stay small and not take up space. Whose very being is characterized as flawed lazy, not to be seen, or worthy of love. The river, she makes me feel alive. Paddling down, my strong arms take me miles down her body of water. 
The river doesn't restrict me. She offers her whole self. I climb out of my kayak and swim in her cool waters. My soft body floats, the current taking me with her. Becoming more present with each deliberate breath, I listen to her song. The ancient scripture, the love letter, nature's mantra and psalm, the battle cry in us all. I am here and I am alive. I am here and I am alive. This field recording was taken while kayaking down the Mokolomni River on Plains Miwok land. In our call for submissions for this issue, we said we wanted people to experiment with creating their pieces. One of the things I really like about Cecily Rose's piece is the point where the background recording cuts so that all we hear is the refrain, I am here and I am alive. And then this is balanced by the way the sounds of the water, the birds and her kayak linger at the end. Cecily says she made her piece by taking field recordings while out on the water, recording her voice separately and then putting them together. Alice, your piece, I Am Still Breathing, is up next, and while it also has a vocal track and the watery environmental sounds, you've taken quite a different approach to constructing it. Shall we listen to it first, and then you can tell us about your process? Absolutely. But before you listen, grab your nearest pair of headphones and put them on. My piece was designed for headphones, and it's just not the same on speakers. The sun is piercing through the thin veil of the curtains and I painfully force my eyes open. My mind is a blur of drowsiness and rising fears. In an hour, I will go diving for the very first time in my life. I dress mechanically the fabric of my swimming costume feeling odd against my skin. I have not worn it for almost two years. I can barely speak as we drive off, the knot in my stomach tightening with every bend of the road and my head slowly spinning. I want to get my feet on solid ground and draw in fresh air, but I can't. I am trapped in this car and can only focus on my breathing to remain calm. I am still above ground. We finally reach the beach and it is only with great effort that I do not rush out. 
The air feels warm in my lungs and for an instant I am relieved. But soon I am reminded that we are not here to unwind on the sand. I can feel the knot in my stomach rising up to my throat as I carry my load down to the shore. My friend is beckoning me to the water now, and I cannot laugh anymore. The air has run out. I step towards the water's edge, every movement becoming a conscious decision to move forward and not to listen to every inch of my body ordering me to turn back. My feet touch the sea and slowly its level rises around me. I am afraid. feet can't touch the sound anymore. I feel my heartbeat accelerate, but I ignore it. I am still breathing. I put on my mask and bite into the mouthpiece. I am still breathing. My friend looks at me and I understand we need to die. I follow him underwater, maintaining my eyes open and suddenly the world changes. It is all water around me and I cannot breathe. I want to rip off my mask and inhale a big gulp of air, but I can't, I can't, I am under water. We resurface and I gasp. I did not expect my body to panic. I know I can breathe from the water. We have oxygen bottles and I have been practicing inhaling through the mouthpiece. I know it works, but it still takes me three attempts before I can master the urge to rip off the mask. Then on, the battle is taking place between my anxiety and the absolute wonder of the world being revealed to me. It is flowing and I have no control over where the current takes me. I let myself drift away, my body spinning where it sees fit. I blindingly trust my friend to keep me safe while my eyes wander around this blue magnificent world. It is just like on TV. All so liquid and foreign, so graceful and unexplainable. leads me deeper and I become aware once more of the rising and falling of my chest. Too far. I try to ignore it, but soon my ears start to ache and I remember where I am, 
I ask to go up. Back on the sand, I sit against the rock and watch my friend go back in the water. I do not know how he manages it, but in that instant I do not care. I am safe. The sea has not swallowed me. I watch the small waves break on the sand. They come and go peacefully. My breathing relaxes and deepens. And I smile. I dive today. The first time. I braved my fears and was rewarded with a liquid world I had never experienced. It was a privilege. One I am grateful to have been granted. But one I am not ready to explore again. Not yet. I love this piece. It's such an immersive experience. Those sounds, the heartbeat, the crashing waves, the muffled underwater music. It makes me feel like I'm there with you, in the sea, in your head, almost in your skin. But in fact, none of the sounds were recorded on your diving trip, were they? Correct. None of the sounds were recorded at the time. This experience of diving happened a few years ago, and I didn't have any recording equipment then. So to find the sounds, I used a website called freesound.org. Freesound describes itself as a collaborative database of audio released under Creative Commons licenses, so it's free for everyone to use. Instead of thinking about what sounds would match the text, I look for what sounds would represent the feeling I had at the time. I browsed a lot. If you look at the show notes, you can see just how many sounds I used, and I downloaded twice as many and listened to even more. So it was a time-consuming process to make the piece in this way, but for me, it's part of the fun. That's so cool. I really hope that someone listening to this is inspired to make their own piece of sound art in this way. The final piece in this watery section is from Mags, who has contributed to every issue of Queer Out here so far. She also combines environmental sounds and her voice, but the rainstorm in this piece is entirely diegetic. This is a single recording with no editing software in sight. The poem Mags reads is Rain by the African-American poet Raymond Garfield Dandridge. The clouds are shedding, tears of joy, they fall with rhythmic beat upon the earth and soon destroy as dunes and waves of heat. Each falling drop enforcement bears to river, lake and drill, and sweet refreshment gladly shares with wooded dell and hill. Every flower, bud and leaf, each blossom, branch and tree, distills the rain, tis my belief, to feed the honey bee. I pity every wretch I find you frowning in disdain, as deaf and dumb and also blind to beauty in the rain. Hi, I'm Ross. 
out in the hills near Manchester. And you're listening to Queer Out Here. The next piece you'll hear is from Mike Parker. Mike is the author of several books, including Map Addict, which is a love letter to the Ordnance Survey. That is a great book. The Wild Rover and Neighbours from Hell. His new book, On the Red Hill, is a search for the queer rural, focusing especially on his friends and benefactors Rage and George, who met in 1949 and were together until their death a few weeks apart in 2011. The book's subtitle, Where Four Lives Fell Into Place, is a good summary of the stories. Reg and George gradually moved from England to Wales, eventually ending up at Friogoch, which they run as a B&B for many years. Mike and Preds became friends with the older couple, and Reg and George ended up leaving Friogoch to them. One of the things I love about this book is that it writes into existence a kind of queer family history, through the connections that the couples share, the anecdotes and photos, the art, the turns of phrase, but also through repetitions of movement and place, the going over and going into of living in these rooms, turning this garden soil, travelling these tracks, offering this kind of hospitality. Hospitality is something that Mike and Preds are carrying on to this day. To create this piece, I visited Mike in his home. We had spoken beforehand about the topics we might cover, but on the evening of my arrival, we simply chatted about what we saw around us and some of our outdoors and queer experiences. The spontaneity and themes of part of this chat paired well with the autumnal reading of Mike's book. In the end, I left Wells with nearly three hours of recording. Mike was incredibly generous with his time and we would like to thank him again for it. Right, well, I'm Mike Parker. I am a bit of a layabout. I'm an author, occasional broadcaster and living up in the hills of Mid Wales with a boyfriend, Preds and our dog and cat. Written quite a few books over the years and my latest one is a celebration and a search for the queer rural. It's a book called On the Red Hill. Last year I found um, about four massive funguses called Hen Hen of the Woods. Never found one before and there were four massive. One of them was about, um, oh god it's about 10 or 11 pounds so what's that about four kilos. Just enormous thing. I mean I kind of and it made about it made about six meals out of that, and it was just beautiful, beautifully. And I've been up and down. I've been scouring this load of old oak trees because they always grow at the foot of old oaks, either dying oaks or or just dead. But old, you need them to be pretty old. And there's a load of old oaks going along that old mill leak, and I've been checking them out every two or three days to see if I can find any. And just nothing yet this year. Though the fields, coppices and tracks are dibbed with hazels and hawthorn, sycamore and willow, larch, elder, rowan, cherry and lime, four trees dominate our greenwood, ash and oak, beech and birch, and in those two couplings. The monster ash with its strobing leaves is just a few yards from its mythic twin, a mighty oak with a girth of 17 feet. Both heave with life. Bees zip in and out of an old nest in the trunk of the ash. Badgers have dug a set in the roots of the oak. Sheep snuggle up to both. Birds and squirrels flit through their branches. There are taller, beefier oaks in the fields and woods around, but this one is Primus interpares. To the west, away from the house, its outspread boughs command a deep, grassy bowl below the drover's track, a natural amphitheatre where we sledge in winter. From the housewood side of its trunk, our spring bubbles from the roots, once to slake thirst and grow vegetables, now to fill my swimming pond. 
I mean, there's another wood just over there, which is where I've been picking my chanterelles, which is a couple of fields away, which is very specifically uh, an oak wood that was planted in the 18th century for the, the, the military. The oak from Montgomeryshire is famous for being very slow growing, so you produce very dense wood. And that was very, very valuable in, to, the, to the Navy, you know, back in the day. So a lot of plantations were established in Montgomeryshire in the 18th century for the Navy. And then the one down here. By the time it kind of came to maturity, technology had moved on and they were using other things, so it never really got used. With its military associations and man-spreading canopy, it is inevitable that we perceive the oak as the alpha male of the wood, feet planted heftily in the soil as it keeps watch over the countryside. Equally inevitable, after centuries of chauvinism, is that ash is presented as its female counterfoil. King oak and queen ash are everywhere from fairy stories to Wiccan rituals, and it's hard not to slip into such reductive thinking. Oakish George and Ashen Reg fit the bill. Though remember the twist, for all its vulnerability, Ash is whip-smart, the chosen staff of Mabinogi magicians, the world tree of Norse mythology, and with an unsung punk androgyny. Even the most fervent Ash devotee would struggle to claim that its autumn foliage is a highlight. The thin cluster of leaves is one of the last to arrive at the springtime party, and six months later is always first to go, slipping from view when no one is watching. The oak, meanwhile, hogs the hearth and ripples with pride, flexing its sunset colours for all to admire. There is oak in every direction, in woods and spinneys, along tracks, lanes and boundaries, standing sentinel in fields. Then we'll go down into the next bit, which is sort of mainly birch trees. Um, very good for foraging mushrooms. Uh, this year has been an amazing year for the chanterelles. I've been picking kilos and kilos of them for a month now. Um, and they're one of the easiest ones to find and one of the nicest ones to find as well. So. But the chanterelles are beautiful mushrooms and they are like egg yolk yellow and really pretty. About a week ago I was picking loads but they've all kind of dried up and gone really. For the beechwood two fields away, its showstopper comes in early May when feathery leaves unfurl and in one day it catapults from gaunt austerity elfin playground. It is a moment of exquisite transience as the canopy quickly hardens into summer. The autumn show is slow. A month-long swell of basso profundo in which the tinkling chimes of gold and russet become imperceptibly clearer every day. On the ground a beechwood is forever autumn. Little else is allowed to grow beneath its outstretched arms so that the carpet of fallen leaves is permanent only refreshed by November's bright new crop. Given a choice for my final walk, like a condemned man's last supper, it would be to this beechwood. In there I dissolve. It is where I dod and all at Vanghoid, literally return to my trees, figuratively come to my senses. 
In autumn, the paramount sense is smell, that Proustian rush of nostalgia, whisking us to another place or time in a heartbeat. There are so many triggers. The first whiff of wood smoke on damp air, an umami wallop of fungi in the woods. The tang of fast water after the dribbles of summer. The smell of the beechwood, like the smell of the mountain river below my old house, is the one that brings me back home, and never more so than in autumn. I'm instantly soothed by its brown and leathery bass notes that somehow hold a distant hint of rich tobacco smoke. In such fanciful moments, sat with my back square against one of the elephantine tree trunks, my hands idling on the mossy armrests of its roots, I'm in a Chesterfield, by the fire at my gentleman's club. Well, the thing about foraging, and this is the thing that actually is the most important element of it, it's not just finding food. It's about refocusing your mind's eye. Because all too often, and this is the case for all of us, we go for a walk and, you know, there's something we're chewing over our life, you know, our normal life. And, and sometimes it's all too easy to get to the end of a walk and realise that you've barely really interacted very much with nature. You know, you might have done a little bit, oh, that's nice for you, or whatever. But you haven't really done it on a profound way. And by really searching in the scrub and in the undergrowth or in the bushes and the hedges for whether it's blackberries or rose hips or mushrooms or whatever, that just refocuses your mind's eye and changes your day, changes your walk. Dropping through the wood in a series of little skips is the stream that begins its life upon Brynabrine and that once constituted a Shugach's boundary. The bulk of the beechwood sits on the far side. On our bank of the stream, the grace of the wood soon disintegrates into a scrubby mix of trees, dominated by birch in assorted states of collapse. The scent here is lighter and more astringent, still the gentleman's club, but in the watery sunbeams of the morning after. This half of the wood has none of the imperial swagger of the beeches. Its charms reveal themselves only slowly as you bump your way down to the river over rotting stumps and trickling sumps of moss and leaf mould. The birch trees huddle in what appears to be funereal communion, though look harder and you'll see elegant solidarity. A quiet beauty too. In the papery bark striped like toy tigers, the harlequin leaf mottle of autumn and the purple lacery of winter. The young trees stretch athletically in the morning chill flexing their smooth and sinewy limbs. Their older brethren, racked by arthritic twists and bulges, look on admiringly and with no trace of regret. From Wales to the USA and a piece from Aaron Calidris. Like Mike, Aaron lives in a rural area, but her experience is not recorded in the same way. While Mike is presenting a queer family history, Aaron is reflecting on being different and potentially unloved in the US Bible Belt. They write that there is a yearning to be yourself and to also be safe, which presents dilemmas at times. Being different has opened their eyes to the unloved in nature. I enjoy how they draw parallels between being different and being attracted to difference and learning to better understand themselves and to love better. To introduce myself, my name is Aaron. I'm a queer 
outdoors person and a amateur uh, nature photographer. And my kind of emphasis and specialty and kind of focus is on drawing the lines between nature and being queer and how I can use the kind of lessons and uh, observations that I get from interacting with nature to better understand my identity. And I think it's something that's fairly universal, something that's not just me, it's something that we as as queer people, we as uh, humans in general can learn from. And so I don't really have a like total game plan, so it's going to be a bit of a winging it kind of situation. But I wanted to start off by saying that it's really important for me to be able to have a connection, even mostly digital, to other queer individuals in who are also outdoorsy and who love nature and science or some kind of variation of that because for me I live in the rural uh, United States Gulf Coast region and in the kind of heart of the Bible Belt and so I experience um, a lot of subtle uh, homophobia and just some not okay attitudes and things that have been said a lot. And so with me being maybe two hours away from a a queer-friendly metropolitan area, I um, have always found it super helpful to be able to reach out to my siblings and brothers and sisters and my other uh people of my tribe and my uh, my people in other areas and, and say, you are not alone. I am not alone. We are in this together. And this is our bond. And so I tend to end up focusing a lot on the oddities and the the strange things and the queer things, the carnivorous plants that defy what we as as kind of a society think about what plants do. We don't think of them as eating insects. We don't think of them as um, being abnormal. You know, I like to tell people that I love snakes and salamanders and creepy crawly things because I'm a member of the queer community and they often look at me with a just a raised eyebrow like I don't know what the hell you're talking about and so I explain it like this so many people are going to look at us as members of the queer community especially those of us who are visibly out or Um, not hiding our identities or our sexualities, Um, they're going to look at us and they're going to make judgments about us based on what they think about the queer community or the LGBT community. 
And often that may be prejudice based on religious views or their their values that they've been taught and what they've been taught to think is correct. And so here in uh, my region, I get that same thing, um, not only against me, but I also see it so often against things that are less traditionally beautiful. So I see people who will just vehemently go out of their way to destroy every single snake they ever see because religion tells them that snakes are satanic or have some sort of connection to Lucifer, even if that's not true. And so I see this, I see these values and these beliefs being used to teach hate against things that have are really just wanting to survive and i empathize with that and so i i love the i i i gave a talk once at a at a local church about loving the unlovable and how being queer helped me appreciate the things that most people don't ever love because i realized that they may not look the same, they may not act the same, they may be doing things I don't understand, but that doesn't mean that they're not worthy of love and compassion. And so I feel like, honestly, like that's one of the main things that I draw from nature is being not only able to better love um, nature and animals and wildlife and things that may seem undesirable, but to also better love myself and to better love my other queer people in my community. Hello, um, this is Martha. I'm walking home right now. These are the sounds of my walk home. And this is queer out here. The next section of this issue is loosely based around seeking, finding, and sometimes missing, or constructing and making visible queer existences, networks, and histories. We start in Amsterdam, where Sarah Aspey talks to Sanne Poles about Sanne's queer walking tour of the city. Sarah writes that she was fascinated by the idea of Sanne's LGB tour and how she creates new queer geographies of the city in these intimate tellings. I'm sitting here with Sanne Poles on Dam Square. Sanne started the LGB tour of Amsterdam which weaves together queer history of the city and personal stories and introduces new visitors to Amsterdam. Sana, could you like describe a little bit of where we are now and why this is the beginning point of your tour? Yeah, absolutely. So we're sitting now on Dam Square and actually Dam Square is, I always say to the people on my tour, it's like, looks like two parts, but it's one. But in the like 1600, there was water in between. But Dam Square, we're sitting now in front of the Royal Palace and at the right of us we see a giant 
phallus symbol, I would say. Yeah, enormous. Yeah, very enormous. And of course, it's a memorial monument. Um, and it's from white, I don't know if it's marble. But it's white and also behind it is this wall. And at this wall, the, the both sides are like a white bench. And this became my favorite place in the city for the since the last year and it's quite funny because this specific area also the street here at the left dam street is i think the most hated area for amsterdam cyclists it's true yeah it's totally true. true and for me it became my my favorite i love sitting here not only the start of my tour but also in my free time i love uh, being here because everything the whole identity of the city comes together here I think all these. I think you're the only Amsterdam I've met who's ever wanted to sit here. <laughs> so really... I think it's true. I think it's true. I don't know if it counts that I did. I wasn't born here, but I think eighty um, percent can say that. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Yeah. At least. Yeah. So I always start here my tour, my LGBT tour, because. Um, well, my tour is not per se very heavy on topic. It can be because we talk about queer politics and these personal stories. Uh, but the monument remembers the victims of the Second World War. Uh, and I always start with this story uh, because maybe, as you know, Hitler and the Nazis were not only against Jewish people, but also a whole bunch of people uh, and also gay men and lesbian women. And I don't tell that to the people to like educate them or inform them. But I tell it because now I can share my story in free space here, in open space. It was not so long ago that it was different. And also a lot of people on my tour are not free in the country where they're from. So it's for my awareness at the first point to remember that it's not this ending point in a tell a story of history. But it's this thing that is uh, we still have to be aware of it. And, and I hope always to connect to the community and, and work for this freedom. Absolutely. And what kind of countries do people come from? Uh, it can be very different, but not from, from every country. Uh, a lot from uh, Northern uh, America, United States, some few from Southern America, um, then, of course, Europe, but let me think which Eastern Europe more. Yeah. Uh, Germany sometimes, a lot from the UK, yeah, most from the UK, I think, and then from the Netherlands sometimes as well. Then, yeah, in Asia, Singapore, Korea a lot, South Korea a lot, China, Japan sometimes. Wow. Uh, also, I had a few of uh, the United Emirates. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wide mixture. Yeah, it was very yeah. special because they were a couple, the guys, and they were always a secret in the country they were from, and now they were like so happy they could walk hand in hand yeah. here, so super happy. Yeah. But they also were very happy because they went to the coffee shop. So I, did, <laughs> I didn't know that, and then I gave them this glitter shot, which I always do. It was my second tour, and they threw up in the middle of my personal story. <laughs> Somebody has just requested a, a photo in front of the phallic statue, so Sana has nipping off to take it quickly. It's a photo, a group of young guys wearing beanies, looking very ecstatic, 
to be in Amsterdam. When you're sitting here, you also get to see all different people taking selfies. Yeah, so um, maybe it's uh, what I always find important is also the story why I actually started this tour. Yeah, I was curious about that. Yeah, and I didn't also didn't really think it through, but anyway, I started it. Um, well, now I'm I'm 36 and I live now 10 years in Amsterdam, so it means I moved here when I was 27, and at that point in my life I was. Uh, living in the uh, south of uh, Holland, in Brabant. Um, very different from this city. Also the culture is very, very different, but also the accent. They talk with a soft G, so yeah. it would be... Uh, Same as my girlfriend in yeah. Hamburg. Yeah, it would be very different. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I just finished my studies journalism over there, and I just broke up with my boyfriend, who I lived with for four years. Um, because he didn't support actually me wanting to go to university. Uh, for me, that was the reason. And uh, so I moved to Amsterdam, yeah. And I uh, wanted to study religion studies. So I was very interested in that from outside perspective to learn about it. So I uh, started at the university, the Freie Universiteit. And it was at the faculty of, um, together with theology. Uh, and I met this girl there from the student association, and I totally and, and I immediately want to uh, work with the student association, but uh, because I didn't knew anyone here, and this girl I found so I found her so annoying, but uh, like after what a few, about her? I I don't know she did she did so I don't know I found her annoying when she said something it was it was really stuck in my head always, and I found mm. it super annoying. And she said she was so uh, not nice to me or something super direct. I don't know. And also, I, I got shy from her, and I'm not used to that. I think I found that really annoying. And uh, now I know also why, because a few months later, I found out I was totally in love with her. Aha. Yeah. Luckily, she was also <laughs> in love with shy. me. Yeah, that made me very shy. And I was not comfortable with it. We got into a relationship, and was of course very new to me because I always thought I was totally straight and I really thought a lot of it. I said to my friends statistically one of us has to be gay but I'm not the one because I thought of it a lot. Well that didn't end like that but going back to my tour when I walked here with my first girlfriend hand in hand on the street uh, that was so different because with the boyfriend no one would look around wouldn't say anything positive not say anything negative and with her, people could give a thumbs up, but also negative reactions. And because it was this super hard cut suddenly for me, and I saw it so clearly how different uh, outside world reacted to me, I started sharing personal stories in all my work as a trainer or host in diversity theme. And then the storytelling, when I do it in a theater, I, I love it. I really feel comfortable. 
but I 100% miss making the connection with the people and want to hear what they think and what their stories are. And so, and then last year I thought, why not share my personal stories in public space and meet all these LGBTs and allies who visit the city every day yeah. and do a pink route with my favorite spots and some queer history. So that's how I started. That was really long oh, already. Um, no, amazing. It's perfect. Oh, okay. <laughs> oh, well, there's so much more that we could talk about. Yeah. But, um, we'll leave it there for now. Thank you. Queer histories are not always visible in traditional paper-based archives. Often they are passed on already, like Sane is doing with her tour, making visible what would otherwise easily be missed. Other forms of recording of queer communities and their stories are networks of friends and acquaintances. In the next piece, Carol Pryor finds herself in a burgeoning lesbian culture in the USA in the late 1980s. Her form of documenting what she experienced and saw was through the medium of music. The tape she recorded by Zen has now been digitized and some of those stories are shared with us. Uh, my name's Carol Pryor and I'm a singer, songwriter and choir leader in, based in Hastings in East Sussex. So the three songs that you um, managed to get off that tape before it got chewed up, they were all written while I was staying at a place called the Pagoda in Florida which was a lesbian guest house type thing. And I, in 1987, I had the money made from a film that I'd made for Channel 4, coincidentally about being a lesbian. With that money, I was able to go travelling under the pretext of looking for an, an agent, actually, for what I did, because somebody said that maybe I, the sort of stuff I did would go down well in America. So off I went. And... Basically, I didn't find an agent, but I discovered this incredible lesbian scene in the States in 1987. Lying with my back on the sand, listening to the waves. Lying with my back on the sand, nothing much to say. Watching the pelicans fly out on a long, long I met the musicians that I told you earlier, <laughs> Sandy and Sheila Fay, they were partners, and they were in this, um, they had this band that played occasionally, possibly just to, to you know, to sort of le lesbian festivals, but they were called Connie Lingus and the Damp Panty Band. Um. <laughs> and I still to this day think it's just, out, it's, it's so outrageous. And I mean, it, it, but one, you know, wonderful because, um, yeah, we were far ahead of our time, let's just say that. Uh, I wonder where those girls are now. They were they were just fun and we, we ended up jamming. So the music that you will hear, it was the result of a jam. Why is the twinkle so blue, blue as the skies? In terms of uh, how those songs evolved, I stayed at the Pagoda, it was the place I stayed the longest. And the beach had um, these four-wheel drive trucks, blokes in four-wheel drive trucks, and they were, I have to say, they were blokes, driving up this beach. And it was a huge, very, very long beach, and they, so they used to come out to play in their trucks and churn up the sand, and you, you'd be lying there, you know, with your top off. And, um, and then this, this truck would be coming 
and you and you would you know you wouldn't be able to relax and bang goes your peace and quiet etc etc so I was so incensed I wrote that song Pagoda Paradise about that is still being churned up and I know now that the mess we're in is not just down to men of course it's not um, but but you know um, still overwhelmingly it's the patriot the, what we call the patriarchy I suppose but we've all got our part to play but yeah I realized I was a environmentalist back then and I didn't even know it Carrie Lee Drum was the 10-year-old daughter of my friend Chris Drum. I was I babysat her one afternoon and I and I was thinking, oh God, what am I, what are we gonna talk about? <laughs> and I thought, no, you don't talk with kids. You don't, you know, you do things with them. So I said, let's talk about you know what it's like being here, because I'm a tra I'm a visitor and you're the daughter of someone who lives there. So shall we put down, you know, I write songs, so shall we kind of put down our thoughts? And so some of those words I I actually lifted from, so really, technically speaking, the song is part, is inspired by the Carrie, Carrie Lee and it probably has even some of the actual things she said, like she had 62 flea bites. <laughs> I wrote this song and I must say I love that song. Every time I hear it I think I wish somebody had written a song about me when I was ten. Prick the bubble. It's like it exists, and that's why this um, whole thing about me saying to you, I've got these songs that came out of that summer, and some of them are about the environment, or one of them in particular. It just felt, yeah, I'm so glad to be able to still have that music of that time because it puts me right back there. last song was just basically me um, going on and on about the kind of uh, 
the summer I was having, which was, I met women and I, I, uh, what, well, you know, you're young and you're kind of traveling, so you have more than one girlfriend on the go. That's one such memory. Another would be, I guess it would be dancing naked, semi-naked under the stars at night at Michigan Women's Music Festival, 8,000 lesbians on the land. And women in their thousands turned up to these things. It, you know, everyone backstage, everyone on stage, all the crew, just women. There was nothing to compare it to having left this country. So I did feel like I had walked into a kind of parallel universe um, that was the safest place you could be as a woman. so hot that summer. I went around with a, um, there was no dress code as such, so you weren't required to take your clothes off, but a lot of women obviously did because it was, it was hot. Um, so yeah, there, there, there was a band playing, it was, somebody was playing on the main stage and I had, and I had a disguise for the sake of decent, some sort of decency, but mainly so that you didn't get ants crawling up your back passage. I used to have a, a scarf tied around my waist, and so you could pull it down to sit on, right? So there I am, I'm out in the middle of the night, um, and I am dancing, I'm dancing in the dark. And then I, then I hear somebody who's nearby, and we call to each other. And you know, above our heads, it's just the sky and the stars and the music, and it's it's beautifully warm in a way that it never is, hardly ever is here. And there I am dancing, you know, almost as naked as the day I was born, and and I feel so free, and I feel so good, and I feel like this is how life should be. I was really honoured that Carol asked my partner and I to help her digitise her cassette and play a part in keeping this miniature queer music archive alive. The film that Carol mentions at the start of the piece is available to rent for £1 on the BFI website, and we'll link to that in the show notes as well. One thing that did surprise me was Carol's description of the Michigan Women's Music Festival as such a special place. I'd only ever heard it mentioned in terms of its trans-exclusionary policies, but when I thought about it, I realised, of course, it must have been a great event, otherwise trans people wouldn't have wanted to attend. It was interesting to hear a different perspective, and while it obviously doesn't negate the transphobia that trans women in particular experienced around the festival, talking to Carol left me with a richer understanding of that history. There's a connection here with our next piece, from Chris Hanoir, who, amongst other things, talks about the struggle to find, create or fit into a community as a non-binary person. 
Chris finds that sometimes even other queer people misgender them. As quite a few of our previous non-binary, genderqueer and trans contributors have mentioned, perhaps that's one reason to spend time outdoors. The trees, rocks, rivers and animals don't misgender anyone. Chris's piece was recorded on ancestral Inklapamuch land. Out right now I'm out at snowy lakes up in the North Cascades. It's a bit of a spotty kind of day. Started spitting a little rain on and off. The clouds keep drifting back and forth over the lake basin. The valley beyond is, oh, now looks like it's covered completely in mist and that it might be just raining over there. So, decided to take a rest and lay in my tent for a while before cooking dinner. This trail was interesting for a bit. This is my first solo backpacking trip for this year after a, oh, fun failed attempt at, attempt at Upper Lena Lake, where it started raining, or it had been raining, and I was just lonely, so I decided to turn around. But this is twice the distance and not very reasonable to turn around now, and I'm just in a much better place at this point in the summer. Getting outside this year has been interesting. So there's this concept in astrology called Saturn's Return. It happens about every 29.5 years. And the premise is that Saturn is the ruler of structures and foundations. And so when he comes back, turns your life on its head. And so this year I've been really, really feeling it been quite quite the challenge and last year was almost felt too easy where it's just I'm going to commit to this outdoors goal I have of 600 miles on the trail and climb Mount Adams and go through the enchantments then this year it was so amorphous oh I want to do Rainier and a class 2 or class 3 scramble and comparable mileage I guess but also I have all these other substantive goals and so something, something had to give. I mean, almost 300 miles and 100,000 foot vertical isn't bad for August. It just feels so less in, by, in comparison. But I'm trying to be kind and accepting to myself and shifting my energy away from any sort of regret to positive vision work and setting an intention to just overall create the life that I want. Now it looks like the weather's shifting. A little bit more, the rain's getting darker across the valley and might be heading, blowing into the basin. Getting outside, I guess going back to the topic of, <laughs> of the zine itself is has been everything to someone with bipolar disorder and identifying as a non-binary individual. There's no judgment out here and cares and disruption to life just kind of 
fall away. I'm gonna close the rain fly. It's a little extra spitty. Some of my friends have made fun of me for the way I hike. Chris, you're a closeted trail runner. <laughs> Which is kind of funny. Because I do want to try trail running now. But the faster I would hike, the further I could get out of my head. And so when I compare last year, when I had such such a feeling of completeness being outside and committing to that goal and this year it just feels like I'm fumbling through. It's hard. It's hard to know that even that foundation is shifting. But another thing I've found changing this year is my intention to build community that's around outdoors and music and yoga just finding these connections that share share all of these wonderful wonderful things in my life and so that in and of itself has almost been a goal because I used to have you know a main hiking bestie fortunately her time is short this year and gone from hiking every weekend together to maybe seeing each other once a month. So it's felt a lot lonelier to try and get outside, and especially since I haven't been that great at planning. She was always up for picking things last minute. But other folks, especially when it comes to more difficult mountains and longer backpacking trips, folks who are into that tend to book their weekends out quite far in advance for next year I'll have to set aside the time to plan extensively and especially if I want to climb Tahoma or Mount Rainier um, still envisioning that it could happen this year just think it's probably more realistic that it'll happen next year but hey there's still a couple weekends where it's possible Gonna open the rain fly. Of course, there's another sunburst. This weather has been so spotty. And I've been getting misgendered so often lately. Even with the community community I've started building, which has been frustrating. It's really tiring to have to like defend my identity. Especially outside of work when it's where I'm supposed to be having fun and instead I probably partially dissociate because of just the misgendering and the, the mild dysphoria that comes with that or even heavy dysphoria, I guess. Ugh. Excuse me. I ate like 800 calories of plantain chips and Oreos. It was amazing. Uh, it's something, so the queer folks, finding more of those gender literate people or something I have to set in my, my intention setting, envisioning goals and such. 
which I'm excited about. I think even this trail sort of could sum up where I'm at right now. I was excited and it was beautiful at first, and then we rounded, and it's on the PCT, and we, I rounded this section, and suddenly there was a cliff face, but the trail was still relatively flat. And I curved across another pass, and the trail was hugging the side of another cliff, and there were several washouts and full exposure, and just a sheer rock wall on one side, and nothing on the other, and considering the last person I'd seen was probably two miles back, and it was, it was little, I put my heart in my throat, which is not something I've experienced on the trail in a while. And that's where the years put me, with the rest of my life it's put my heart in my throat consistently, and I knew even last year I could feel that I was putting off all this processing and setting and handling all these other life goals and issues because I wanted to achieve all that, that hiking stuff and well here I am and it's eight months in 2019 and things are looking up and turning around and it's exciting and scary. I was debating on playing my flute on this recording, but there's some folks pretty close to my tent, and I'd almost feel weird that there's just a flute-playing tent. Now well, let's hope for a good, good sunset, and maybe this time, finally, I'll get up for a sunrise on a backpacking trip. We'll see, though. All right. Here's to fun time outside. Hi, I'm Emma, and I'm escaping at Stuffy Library for a brisk walk around the harbour and some fresh air during my lunch hour. And you are listening to Queer Out Here. In our fourth section, Jonathan and Camilla reflect on the idea of trespass and things we're not meant to do outdoors. In Jonathan's piece, A Cartography of Trespass, he addresses ideas about space, trespass and queerness, and how they can relate to one another. I love how his thoughts, the spaces he explores, and the memories he shares intermingle to create a layered piece that is worth listening to multiple times. This is an abridged version of Jonathan's piece. I can only recommend you check out the full-length version once you're finished listening to Queer Out Here. Oh, thank you. I'll link to it in the show notes. I do want to emphasise that this is just one way of looking at trespass, and other people in other places will have very different experiences. Some will be much less positive. I'd be interested to hear those perspectives, so if you do have a response, perhaps you can make a piece for the next issue. And speaking of trespass, some of the field recordings I use here were taken on Woiwurrung and Gunai Kurnai country, specifically the country of the Wurundjeri, Boonwurrung and Croathunkalung people. Sovereignty was never ceded, this always was, and always will be, Aboriginal land. I've been thinking a lot about trespass, about being as queer people in places we're not expected to be, places we're not welcome, places we're not allowed. There's a sign here at the edge of the woods on an old barbed wire fence. Private keep out 
danger shooting in progress. Let's get into the woods. Down the path, and there's a tree here. A big hornbeam has fallen. It fell over, I, I don't, don't know, know how long ago. Years ago. When I go into the woods, I feel a bit nervous. Because of the sign, because I'm trespassing. But when I sit on this tree, I feel like it is part of my world and I am part of the tree's world. And of course, we should be here together. And anyway, I quite like trespassing, climbing gates and jumping fences, wandering unmarked paths, sleeping in fields and woods. I think I've always enjoyed going off track, finding things, Places, paths, objects that other people might not know about. Finding spaces that feel intimate, not because they're shut off or locked up like a room, but because they are open only to the sky, to the trees, the grasses, the animals, the smell, the rain. It rained earlier today, so it's a little bit slippery. A little bit muddy. When I was a kid, I'd sometimes cut through the bush instead of taking the road. Let's go and look at these little banks of white flowers. Anemones. Or go on adventures with my sister, following the creek rainforest down to the river. I wonder if there's a way to get down there. And when I moved to the city, I'd choose alleyways and back lanes, walk through public gardens and across private parking lots when I could, follow dirt paths along the creeks and drains. I was trying to find those cracks in the cityscape, trying to find something below the hard surface, something beyond what I was meant to see and smell and hear and feel. But I think I might try to cut across country, see what I can see. I think I'm just going to go through here. I can see the road through all these spindly tree trunks. Wild garlic, anemones, a bluebells here as well. That's probably whoever owns this wood. Wow, I didn't even know this was here. Looks like quite a good place to come and rabbit pass. Sleep out one day. Fox bath down here. But nobody comes along. Just have to I practice my best innocent face and are surprised. Oh, oh I, I didn't, didn't realise. In case the landowner appears. <laughs> it's so funny how I'm so confused about where I am. My fear annoyed me in relation to what I know. The whole idea that I shouldn't be there, that I didn't belong there, annoyed me. Hopefully they don't come and tell me off. It's getting a bit cold. I think we have an instinctual need to explore the place we live. It might rain again. And I was only metres from my front door. Following faint paths that might have been night roads of wild animals, or the tracks of dogs let off the lead, I headed deeper. Down the hill, into the woods towards the stream I was sure must be there. And then, yes, it appeared below me. And it was, that's, that's, oh, oh, oh wow. wow, it was so pretty.
There's a really big fallen tree here. I'm going to try and catch underneath. We might sit here for a little bit. To be honest, I wasn't thinking so much about queerness and trespass as I sat there. I was listening. I was feeling the ground under me. I was smelling dampness on the leaves. Just being. In place. But now... I am thinking about queerness and trespass, physical, metaphorical, my own memories. The first time I made a choice to kiss a boy, we swam towards each other through the eye-cringing chlorinated water of the outdoor pool, touched lips, laughed huge blue bubbles and stood up, rubbing our faces and blowing drips from our noses. I was about six years old. And I remember sitting under a bridge by a river with a girl I'd had a crush on for months and who I'd finally kiss a year later, getting stoned. I saw the city lights smudge and blur into the sky watched her breathe out, giddy with teenage proximity. And with a lover, breaking in to explore the red brick rubble and ruins near the city baths, being blindfolded and spun around. And then the scarf slipped off, told to look up, further up, past the whirling skyscrapers to the stars and the spaces between them. and having sex, or trying to, with my partner on a lumpy hillside covered in knotted kaikuyu, uncomfortable and laughing as a wombat wandered past, indifferent. These jewel box memories of relationships are pinned in place. They are memories of being in places we were not meant to be, being with people we were not meant to be with, doing things we weren't meant to do. Charting this map of my queer history, I see it as also a cartography of trespass. And it's a map of solidarity and shared experience, because how many other queers have a memory of holding a lover's hand at a bus stop, despite the sideways glances, under a sneaking a kiss behind a tree, out of sight of the family picnic rugs, bodies squeezed in the shadows of a doorway, skinny dipping, free from unfriendly cis eyes, breaking into the pool and being chased by the sun, beating down on exposed skin at a carnival. Kissing under a lamp. 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 Kissing under a lamp.
I imagine these ephemeral moments building up, layer upon layer, exposure over exposure, creating a palimpsest of queer experience. All girls summer camp. We laugh at that now because none of us are girls anymore. A queer space that exists through time, if not through material signals. Holding hands at campfire, sneaking down to the beach at sunset. Young and innocent and awkward puppy crushes. But it felt right. There's an online version of this, Queering the Map, where queer folk drop markers into a world map, pinning their memories to particular places. We stripped down to our undergarments and took a swim in this private reservoir. A few people came, so we quickly got out. On the way back, I asked if I could kiss you, and we did. Under the trees, privately, where the kiss was our own. The developers say, Queering the Map is a community-generated mapping project that geolocates queer moments, memories and histories in relation to physical space. The intent is to collectively document the spaces that hold queer memory, from park benches to parking garages, to mark moments of queerness wherever they occur. I remember us kissing on the beach in a country where it was illegal to be gay. Had a three-way hookup with two men from my hostel here in the bushes. We did not get caught, but I wish we'd gone. We had sex here in public space because there were adults at home and we were afraid to get caught. I heard you when I let you get close to me. Time with some love to queer family. I'm still sorry I left the moon. first time being okay in my own skin. The pins are a mix of love letters, queer melancholia, dirty scenes, joyful anecdotes, expressions of solidarity, experiences of violence and oppression, descriptions of longed-for futures. We went in the middle of the week when nobody was there. It was quiet and it was beautiful. Just like you. I miss 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 you. Every pin is a claim of space. I was here. We, queer people, are here. I'm thinking, how does this end? How do I bring all this together? The trespass, the memories, the map. But perhaps I'll let this piece exist without a neat, coherent narrative. Goodness knows that as queers, we often don't get to have that. We learn not to need it. We learn to question its use. What is a resolution anyway, apart from an attempt to close off narrative options? A locked gate to climb, a no trespassing sign to ignore. Perhaps we don't need our explorations and our trespasses to have structure. Perhaps we just need to be here. A big thank you to everyone who helped me with this piece to Queering the Map for okaying my use of the pins, to Stephanie, Jess and Dan for reading them, and to Emily, Jenny and Sarah Jane for the additional field recordings. Following on from Jonathan, Camilla Rina shares a poem about another kind of trespass. 
In their piece, they describe having sex in a hammock in nature surrounded by gorgeous trees, but still close to various other people also enjoying the nature. Their poem contains an explicit description of sex and is also a celebration of the joyful and grounding energy of the trees. Sweetness by Camila Rina. This poem has a content warning for descriptions of sex. A feminine voice asks if you have a cigarette you could spare. I close my legs, trapping your palm between them, putting my own hand over top as camouflage. Hold my breath. You say no, lightly. Your hand held still inside me under the soft-toothed cotton. My body paused while they walk away. You look over the blue fabric to check who else is near, then sweep that hand, decisively, beckoningly. I make my gasps quiet, move very economically. All I can see are the thick green leaves above. When my curved eyelashes start fluttering down, my gasps closer together, I unbuckle, unbutton, push down with my thumbs. You look around again, casually, though maybe not fooling anyone, and slide down your face beside the line of my hip now. I tilt towards you. Your tongue dips down. The fluttering comes faster than the gasps, the uncontrollable jerks of my hips while I'm trying to be quiet, safe, your hands still moving inside me, gentle and relentless. I'm looking up at the trees. They're stealthily watchful and calm while my hands spasmodically open and close by my hips. My eyelids come down, climb back up. My mouth staccato inhales as softly as I can. When the pinwheels explode in my eyes, white light filling my vision for a few seconds, I press my lips closed after the first moan, fist my hands, flex my toes, make eye contact with the trees, perceptive, protective, opulent, and endure the rush. I keep my hips as steady as I can. Push at your shoulder when I must. You hold me tight for a while, and when I've rearranged my clothes, we sit up slowly. Gently wipe your mouth. Smile. Eventually read poetry out loud together, while my right hand opens your buttons and strokes. This is Emily. And this is Jenny. And you're listening to Queer Out Here. We're on Yorta Yorta Country, on the banks of the Murray River in Victoria, looking out over water, embracing trees on a floodplain, covered in flies and surrounded by birds. Emily and Jenny have taken us back to the river and to our final piece from Fenrir Cerebellion, another repeat contributor to Queer Out Here. In this piece, Fenrir and their dog Francisco make two visits to the Seymour River on the lands of the Tsleil-Waututh Nation.
So this is the Seymour uh, River. Some years back, there was a huge rock slide, a chunk of the mountain face dropped into the river and uh, interrupted the coho salmon flow. Uh, since then, there's been a project of blasting the boulders so that they've broken up enough to uh, flow downstream. Um, and in the least uh, negative impact way possible. And it's been working really well, um, according to all of their signs. <laughs> So I'm at the same place as I was in the other recording, um, out with my dog on this trail along Seymour River. Um, uh, well, it gets to Seymour River. Um, I just got over the crest of a little hill um, and I'm beginning my descent down to the river. It's October now. The last recording was several months ago. And um, uh, so it is gray. There is mist among the tops of the very tall trees. Because, uh, you know, it's raining. Uh, trail's a little wet. It's not too bad until I get to maybe some of the more bouldery rock sections. Um, uh, but since it's raining here, it means it's been raining at higher elevations. That's my dog. Uh, it's been raining at higher elevations, and so the river is real loud. And the thing you hear right now is not the river. It's a tributary. Um, so I'm just going to record a bit as I get close to it, and then I guess once I get down there, I'll pop this back on. Uh, so you can hear how loud the river is, uh, but otherwise, that's, uh, this is my routine hike, which has been great. Um, I have a very anxious dog who does not do well in the city, and so she does great on the trail off leash. Um, I'm also just someone who grew up in the mountains, so as much as I moved to the city to get access to medical transition, resources. Uh, I didn't mean to return um, after taking a trip. Um, that was a congrats. I completed the thing. I'm going to bike to Montreal. Um, so I've been accidentally living in the city for another three years. Uh, and every day is just, I grow deeper in my cynicism about the city and how I want to leave. Um, so having these trails a short distance away to hike on is awesome. Um, yeah.
And so we leave issue 4 as we began, at the river. Thank you so much to all the people who have contributed in some ways to the issue. Everyone who made or featured in a piece. Ross, Martha, Emily, Jenny, Abby and Emma for the sweepers. And Ella for our wonderful cover art. If you've enjoyed any of the pieces you've heard, please get in touch with us or the creators. You can find links to everyone's online profiles in the show notes on our website, queerarthere.com. And thanks to you for finding us and listening all the way through. We'd love it if you could have a think about who you might want to hear from in future issues. We're especially interested in hearing from folks who are underrepresented in more mainstream queer and outdoors media. Indigenous people, people of colour, folks with disabilities, people with experiences of poverty or homelessness, queer families, generally folks whose voices and creations aren't amplified nearly enough in this world. So if that's you or someone you know, please get in touch. We're also keen to hear different kinds of stories. Did you know that we haven't yet had any piece about team sports or gardening? We haven't featured any audio from political protests or street festivals. And we haven't heard what the outdoor sounds like anywhere in Asia. And that's a big place. So get out there, hit record and take our areas adventuring. We'll be open for submission again in spring 2020 or autumn 2020 if you're in the southern hemisphere. Finally, just a reminder that you can sign up to our very occasional newsletter by visiting our website, queerouthere.com. You can also find us on Twitter and Facebook and SoundCloud, where we release all our sweepers and previews, but not the full issues because we are too cheap to pay for a premium subscription. We also release our previews with a sneak peek of our cover arts on Vimeo and YouTube. So come and find us. And that's it for issue four. So from me, Alice. And me, Jonathan. Goodbye. Goodbye.